As we look at Jesus visiting Nazareth, this is, uh, I believe, uh, one of more than one trip that he made to, to Nazareth. Um, the, the, the saying, the statement that, that comes up often in one's mind with this passage is, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, uh, it's the familiarity that turns a young woman from, but daddy, I love him, to, I can't stand his laugh. I don't want to be around him anymore. You know, uh, I've often said that, you know, Kelly and I enjoy uh, watching and listening to shows like Dateline and 48 Hours, and you could basically describe Dateline, I'm going to try my Keith Morrison voice here, as his life was one chain of bad decisions after another, always unlucky in love. That's a little too southern. But anyways. <laughs> but then things were looking up. He'd met a new woman. He had a new woman in his life. And everything was great. Until six months later when the thrill had worn off. I'm like, that's just one, a continuation of the one bad decision after another. What are we talking about here? Things are looking up. You know, the... The root word of familiarity is the same as the word family, from the Latin familia. Ever dread a Thanksgiving dinner with extended family? You're dreading what you've grown to expect. You've, you're dreading kind of what you're familiar with. You might even, uh, and, and you know, it's not, it shouldn't always be this bad. This is just, this is a minority of cases. But you, you might even be in the wrong spirit, kind of walking in the flesh, with your spouse and saying, oh, if, if Uncle uh, Rufus, I try to think of a name that's not represented here. <laughs> if Uncle Rufus brings up his big toe again, I think I'm going to have to walk out of the room. You know, that familiarity that breeds contempt. I actually worked with a pastor that visited his distant family while his mother was passing. And, and even though he had been by the bedside of so many dying people, his family wasn't interested in him sharing with them what they should expect. He was just still little Dave to them who didn't know a whole lot. This morning we see the, this familiar saying about familiarity play out in the life of Jesus but I believe we're also seeing a case study in what Jesus has been teaching us earlier in this chapter of chapter 13. So even though Jesus isn't teaching a parable here, I be, we're still in this, this series of kingdom truth for the open heart. Because we are seeing a case study of closed hearts. We're seeing a case study where we can take what Jesus has taught in so many of these parables earlier in the chapter and see this is what he was talking about. So we turn to Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58 this morning. And we read, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? It all seems like it's all heading in the right direction, right? 
They're astonished. They're asking, where did, did this Jesus that we know from, you know, since he was yay high, where did he get all this? Well, then we read further in verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. First thing we want to note here is, I'm sorry, but the, the Catholic doctrine that Mary was a perpetual virgin from, um, for the rest of her life is kind of disproven in verse 55 and, and 56. But we don't need to say any more about that. But Jesus said to them, Prophet is not without is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. We have a double negative there, right? He's saying a prophet is with honor except in his hometown. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Why did Matthew place this event here after? these parables. In Matthew's uh, genre that he's writing in, uh, it is perfectly normal and fine for him to thematically move events where he uh, wants it to fit the narrative that he is trying to paint. Okay, It's not that he's saying, oh, it happened this way, but it didn't. But he's painting a certain picture. If you look at a simple harmony of the Gospels, you can see that there's a lot that goes on between these parables being taught and Jesus' teaching in Nazareth. But yet, Matthew specifically says in verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown. So why did Matthew place this here? He's presenting the event in light of the parables which were taught at another location and at a different time frame. And as we pass over our passage this first time to observe what's going on here, I want you to see that Jesus teaches his hometown. Uh, There's clarity in his teaching here. Coming to his hometown, he taught them. He didn't just teach them. He taught them in their synagogue. This is the specifically... Jesus' teaching in the seat of Jewish learning in Nazareth. Different than the temple. The temple is the place where there would be teaching going on, but it, it was about worship. The synagogue was not necessarily a place of worship in the sense of singing and sacrificing and things like that. It was the place of teaching. It was the place of instruction, and that's where Jesus goes. Matthew connects Jesus' visit uh, to his hometown of Nazareth, and it seems like a perfect scenario for his teaching to bear fruit. If there's a place where Jesus should have had a hearing that bore fruit, it's here in his hometown of Nazareth. This is a town that archaeologists recently have decided it probably was about six to 800 people at the end of a donkey path. It was a small town, about the size of Newmarket. Of course, they would have lived much more on top of each other. Um, people didn't really have yards. 
and it does land. The teaching does hit. It says they were astonished. This means they were overwhelmed with amazement. Their first question, though, has to do with Jesus' authority. In a sense, they're asking, who is enabling this everyday Joe to say these things? This stuff is way above his station in life. You know, when somebody gets asked a definitive question, like in a press conference, like, what is the administration going to do about? They might say, that's above my pay grade. Right? And what they mean by that is, I do not have the authority to make that statement. And the question is being asked here, who gave Jesus the authority to say and do these things? It's, it's somewhat of like a, who does he think he is? But, but there's an apparent, you know, what the, what the religious leaders had done uh, when they could not deny that Jesus' casting out demons was actually happening is they came to the issue of authority and they said, he does this by the authority and the power of the devil. They're not necessarily hitting that, but it's still the issue of where's this authority coming from? And of course we know what authority gave Jesus the right to say and do what he said and did. He's God. That's what they're missing here. So we also, instead of, see, instead of arriving at this conclusion, we actually see that Jesus' hometown gets offended by him. They're like, Doesn't this, this is the same kid. His family still lives here, right? And they took offense. Their questions flow out of these, their astonishment and wondering about Jesus' authority. He's just Joseph the carpenter's son. His mother is little old Mary. His brothers and sisters are the very ones that these townspeople have watched grow up. And, and they were offended. This, this Greek term is skandalizo. It was a scandal. Scandalous. It means to, to, be, to be brought to a downfall. To cause to stumble. What should have been crystal clear became a muddy scandal. And so we see the sad result for the people of Nazareth as we read about Jesus' hometown missing out on his kingdom work. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You know, it was common for uh, Israel's prophets to to, uh, have a message for the nation of Israel that would not be received. And, and the Old Testament is littered with uh, different Gentile people that respond almost instantly to the message of the prophets. And Jesus is pointing out uh, this typical thing. And this kind of became a saying in, in our culture since then. But, but Jesus recognizes the sad situation of his hometown and his own household those brothers that they're talking about part of this could have been you know uh isn't his brother james and judas or or the other name you know short for that jude mary um they're not on board with him we've seen that at this point in the gospels and in other places that his own family was not even 
following him as Messiah. These people missed out on the ministry among them of the Messiah, God's perfect prophet, as well as his perfect king and perfect priest. The cause of their rejection is their unbelief. The, the term for faith is pistia or pistos. Uh, this term is apistia, the, the unwillingness to commit, the lack of faith, the opposite of faith. This lack of faith caused Jesus not to display the kingdom of God in their midst. One writer says, hard-heartedness and rejection of Jesus prevents the Spirit's healing ministry just as they prevent forgiveness of sin. The Holy Spirit does not force his miracles on a hostile, skeptical audience, end quote. And recall that Jesus was about proclaiming the kingdom of God had come. We read this in way back in Matthew 4, verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus' display of his power over the kingdom of darkness was to show that the king was on the scene. He tells us in just the previous chapter in Matthew 12, 28, but if the Spirit of God, but if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among you. So the king was on the scene, and they would not believe him. Therefore, they didn't see any more kingdom work. This very hometown, friends and family, miss seeing the expression of God's kingdom in their midst. And it's because they refuse to believe, to entrust themselves to the fact that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. I just want to ask you, what work of God do you miss? Because you refuse to trust Jesus to be and to be what he says he is. What aspect of God's kingdom are you not seeing because you draw a line where Christ is free to reign? You're free to reign until it comes to this. So we've seen a large, lar the larger details of what it looks like for Jesus on his visit to Nazareth. He teaches his hometown. His hometown folk get offended by him, and they end up missing out on his kingdom work. You know, Matthew didn't, like I said, he, he didn't have to put this event in this place. You, you, can, you can understand that by, by looking at a simple harmony of the Gospels. I think what Matthew gives us here is a case study on the truth of Jesus' parables. I'm not taking this time this morning to delve into how Matthew writes of Jesus' life thematically and things like that and kind of proving this to you. But have you ever been in a situation uh, with, with a family or a group of friends and, and, and somebody's out of the room, right? Somebody is, is, is just uh, in another part of the house and everyone in the room talks about what the person is going to say. When they walk in, right? It's like when I say to him, dessert's ready, he's going to do this little happy dance, right? 
And they walk in, and it's like, dessert's ready, and there it happens. He does his little happy dance. Or, or, or whatever it is. And we're, we're going to make this noise, and he's going to walk in and say, what bomb went off? You know, you just know that person that well. And the person that called it, the person that was able to say, I knew that was going to happen. See, I told you. They could say, called it. I called it. That's why we're looking at this passage this morning in light of the parables and saying, Jesus called it. He knew what was going to happen. While Nazareth is familiar with Jesus to the point of contempt, Jesus' teachings show he is familiar with us. He is familiar with the heart of man. Jesus called it, he called the situation and response of the people of Nazareth. And like I said, I think that's why Matthew places this event here. So first I want to encourage you to see what it looks like for the treasure of following Christ to be missed. It's what we're seeing here. They, they say right there in, in verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They don't see him and his kingdom as the treasure that it is. You know, we talked about how parables are kind of like Jesus painting a picture or, or, or sharing an illustration but not necessarily saying what he's illustrating. Well, he shared an illustration earlier in this chapter where he writes in verses 44 through 46, which Josh covered very well last week. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We look at this situation in, in Nazareth when we look at it through this picture that Jesus already painted about how valuable the kingdom of heaven is. We realize these folks have the pearl of amazing, this priceless pearl in their hand. They have this treasure right before them. And they're saying, who does this guy think he is? They are missing out on the treasure of following Christ. The point that Jesus was illustrating is the fact that the kingdom of God is a trade that is a no-brainer for whatever it is. They might be sitting there thinking, if I follow this Jesus, that means i got to go over to my rabbi and tell him, I'm not following you anymore. Or I might actually have to change my life. I might have to change my opinion about Mary and Joseph and their family. Anything that we might give up in order to see Christ more glorified in our lives, we should do so with joy. Joy, if we're thinking rightly. That is, if we understand it as it is. Or we might end up like the Nazarenes here. Missing the treasure of following Christ because we don't want to depart with our stuff. Or we don't want to depart with our routine. Or we don't want to depart with our preconceptions. Secondly, I want you to see here 
what it looks like for sinful hearts to cause a lack of fruit. As as we pointed out in verse 54, he's teaching them there in their synagogue. This is like the place where the truth is supposed to drop. And they're astonished by it. He taught them plainly, not in parables, in their place of learning. Jesus' childhood neighbors, even his family, were astonished. This means overwhelmed with amazement, like fainting. You know, I don't think they were literally fainting, but it's like, you know, you got that uh, State Farm commercial where, where Jake says something to the team, and then he, like, like says a one-liner, and they all start going, whoa, you know, drumping ice on their I mean, You guys don't watch enough TV. But <laughs> that's the idea here is, like, amazed to the point of being overwhelmed with what he is saying. They got the picture of what Jesus is telling them. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Amazingly, Jesus' hometown couldn't connect that Jesus had received his power and authority from being the God-man that he actually claimed to be. Recall that Jesus told a story about a sower that strewn seed in his field as was the custom. The seed was cast. The seed was good. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There was nothing wrong with what Jesus was saying to them. But just like what we learned, if you, if you recall in the parable of the sower, the seed is cast, but some of it falls on hard, packed ground, and it is just not going to penetrate. And the birds are going to come by and eat it before that seed can bear any fruit. And some of it, the seed gets cast on shallow earth that's got, that's got rock underneath it, and it springs up quickly, but then it fades away because there's no roots to it. And Jesus tells us that that represents the person that is all excited about God, all excited about what he might be doing in their life, but then it fades away and it never bears fruit in their life. And there's seed that's cast onto soil that's just full of... As the weeds choke it out. And, and Jesus tells us that those weeds represent the worries and the pleasures of this world. And I think we're going to see that play out in Herod's court next week. But of course, when the good seed falls on fertile ground, it bears much fruit, he teaches. And he told us in that, his explanation of that parable... That that's like when the word of God lands on a fertile heart. It's going to bear fruit. So what we see played out here in Nazareth, the seed is cast, the seed is good, it's making an impact, they have no excuse. The issue is the hearts of the people that his word lands on. Their hearts weren't in a condition to be able to bear fruit. The fruit of belief. 
I'd even venture to say what kind of soil is represented in the hearts of the people that are described here. He says they took offense at him. They were familiar with him and his family, and because of this, they could not accept who he is, and they took offense. This term, offense, is the same word that describes the, the plant that springs up in the rocky soil and then falls away. Same exact term. It was like, they're astonished, but wait, what does that mean? And they fell away. It just became offensive. This is the same term that describes the plant that springs up, as I mentioned, in the shallow soil. And of course, the ultimate meaning of Jesus' parable of the four soils is that the blame is not laid on the message. The blame for a lack of fruit is laid on the heart of the hearer. And that's what we see going on in Nazareth. And how often do you find yourself interested, excited in what God desires from your life, but it fades to nothing? No greater fruit in your life, no greater holiness, no greater impact on those around you. It happens pretty often for me, to be honest. I don't want to be like these people, all right? I don't want to have a, the full convincing of, that God, of God right in front of me and then get nitpicky with God's method or God's timing or God's messenger. Let's take our shallow hearts to God and ask him to cultivate them into fertile soil for his word. That's what the answer is if we're not to be like the people of Nazareth. You know, the, the <clears throat> moving on here, there's a saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'd like to think of the, the few parables in chapter 13. There, there's some that are pretty chilling here that, I, that I'd like to think we learn from. And, and they describe a person being cast into hell at the end of time. Sadly, we see here in Nazareth in their response, it looks like the, these people are heading in that direction. And it usually comes with following the crowd. It's usually cheered by the crowd. So from their response, I want you to see what it looks like for unbelief to pave the road to hell. We read here that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Folks, unbelief, according to Scripture, is a sin. We, we learn that throughout the book of Hebrews. The, 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 the one sin that the book of Hebrews warns against over and over again is unbelief. Notice that Jesus didn't argue with them or try to change them here in Nazareth. He also didn't call down judgment on his hometown. I, I imagine uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, they probably would have uh, argued for that. We see that other places. But there, would, there, would have, there will be a time for those who continually reject 
Christ as Messiah, as the Savior, as the God-man to face judgment. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus described a landowner that sowed good seed into his field. But, but he says that but an enemy came and sowed weeds into the field. And if you recall that in that story, the, the landowner says, just let them both grow up until they're both mature because we don't want to uh, upend the wheat in the field. And when we harvest them, here's what we're going to do. Wrapping up, Jesus wrapped up his explanation for his disciples. Well, if you recall, the landowner tells his workers, take out the weeds from among the wheat once you harvest them and throw those into the fire. And Jesus gives a chilling explanation of that in verses 41 through 43. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, these are those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Jesus also described how the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. Josh covered this last week. It's, like a, it's like, like a big net that's dragged behind a ship and it's kind of indiscriminate about what it's gathering up. But there's going to be desirable fish in there and there's going to be undesirable fish. And that doesn't, it's not painting a picture like, like anybody who's saved is saved because they're desirable. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the end of the ages God's going to sort out those who are his children through Christ and those who are not. Eventually the fish are separated and those that are unwanted are cast away. Jesus also closes this parable with a similar explanation, even though you don't burn fish. But he says in verses 49 through 50, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course we know that in Christ, the only reason why any of us will be righteous is because we'll be standing in Christ's righteousness, having received Jesus as our Savior. What we see in Jesus being rejected in his hometown is how group think can consume people. And without a change, of course, the result of their unbelief would be an eternity in hell. That's the bottom line. But I want to share here, there is a glimmer of hope in this event in Nazareth. And so I hope you can see what it looks like for the gospel to transform and permeate a person. In these questions that are asked in, verses 55, in verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? We know that by the time that the book of Acts is written, Jesus' mother is, is numbered among his followers. James and Judas, otherwise known as Jude, go on to write books of the New Testament. 
proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. So Mary, James, and Jude go on to entrust themselves to their familiar family member as the Savior of the world. James describes himself in opening his letter as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude writes beautifully in verses 21 through 25, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. I think he can identify with that. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. And then he closes with this beautiful doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. How did this transformation take place from a mother who was told that her child would be the Savior and yet at some point in his life worries that he's out of his head to following him as her Savior? How does this transformation take place of brothers who were very likely outside of that house one day saying, We've come to get Jesus. Something's gone. He's gone off his rocker. To being among those that reject him in Nazareth, his hometown. To writing of their hope and their expectancy and, and encouraging other followers of Christ wait on the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you recall Jesus talking about a mustard seed? which he described as the smallest of all the seeds. But yet, in the course of a growing season, it becomes like a tree in your garden. In fact, it even allows the birds to nest in it. In the same way, the gospel of the kingdom might seem small and insignificant. Just an idea. Just a truth. But it can transform into a life of purpose and meaning and blessing to others. And that's what we see among Jesus' household that originally is rejecting him. Do you recall Jesus talking about leaven? He talks about it as, as being uh, like, like a woman makes enough dough for, for a hundred loaves of bread. And she puts a little bit of leaven into it. And pretty soon, given enough time, probably enough kneading of that dough, that leaven is going to work its way through the entire batch of dough. When the gospel is embraced, it is intended to permeate every speck and corner of our lives. And parents and grandparents, some of you have adult children that have walked away from the Lord. Be praying that the gospel that you have shared will permeate their hearts and their lives. It is powerful and it is permeating.
This day can be the day that anyone moves from unbelief, distrusting Jesus, to belief, trusting him with your life. A lot of times what keeps us from doing so is because we look at our lives, we look at the decisions that we've made, we look at who we are, and we think, you can't handle this. There's not enough grace for this. There's not enough blood to make this as white as snow. That's an issue of trusting Jesus. That's why we call it trusting Jesus as our Savior. Because we're recognizing that he took my, the penalty of my sin on his cross and paid for it. And I don't owe it anymore. And his righteousness has been made available to me. And that means at the end of time, I can be one of those that, that when, when God, he describes it as when his angels come and separate the righteous, I'm one of those. Because I stand in Christ's righteousness, not my own. That can be the day, today can be the day that you go from distrust to trusting him completely. And it's up to you. Let's bow our heads. Lord, no one understands us like you. No one loves us like you. No one could ever provide the grace that all our sin, both past, present, and future, require. No one can provide that like you. Lord, when you are ignored, when you are spurned, if we're standing in our own righteousness, there would be no judgment and misery like what our sin deserves. Lord, I pray for every single one of my friends here to stand in your righteousness alone, to give up and surrender. They're trying to be good enough they're trying to look good enough. It's like they're standing back and saying, who does this Jesus think he is? Thank you for telling us who you are. You are the Savior. You are the King. You are worthy of our faith. You are worthy of our trust. And we give it to you gladly. We pray, Lord God, that you would allow us to walk in that. Whatever it is that you want to transform in our life. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.